Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name's Connor McQuivy. I'm your host as always. Thank you so much for tuning in. Renoites is the weekly interview show where I talk to a variety of folks from Northern Nevada. A little bit of news and politics, businesses, nonprofits, something for everyone is the idea of this show. If you live in Reno and you listen to podcasts, there are probably episodes that are of interest to you. So if you are just finding the show now, scroll back through the feed, see who I've had on the show before, over 100 episodes now. Really appreciate all of the folks who've come on the show. Today's episode is a pretty exciting one. My guest on the show today is Doug Thornley. Doug is the city manager for the city of Reno. I've had a handful of the local electeds on the show, but we don't have a strong mayor system of government here in Reno. We have a strong city manager form of government. On this episode, Doug explains what that is, what he does, how it's different than what the city council people do. And we also talked about some current issues that have been in the news lately, about the Record Street Shelter, about the improvements to the roads and micromodal infrastructure downtown. We talked about homelessness and the CARES campus. A lot of really good stuff. I'm very grateful that Doug took the time to sit down and talk about what's going on in town and how he sees it from the perspective as someone who's actively making a lot of the decisions on how Reno grows and changes. Of course, Renoites is a community-oriented and listener-funded project. I don't have any ads or sponsors on this episode or in general because I want this show to remain independent. I want to be able to have the guests that I want to have. I don't want to annoy you with ads. Ads are very annoying. My hope is to prove that local media can be financially viable and sustainable through listener contributions. Why am I telling you this? Because you can help. If you visit patreon.com slash renoites, you can sign up to support the show for as little as a few dollars a month. It makes a huge difference. It allows the show to continue existing. And I'm trying to do a little bit more perks. For example, there's an episode with Kim Schweikert from Our Place, which is the women and family shelter. That episode won't be out until early November, but patrons can listen to it now. Again, you can learn more about that at patreon.com slash renoites. If you have suggestions or feedback or guest ideas for the show, please let me know as well. You can shoot me an email, Connor, C-O-N-O-R at renoites.com. And make sure you're following me on Instagram as well. That's at renoites on Instagram. And now this week's guest, Reno City Manager Doug Thornley. Doug Thornley, Reno City Manager. Welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about what a city manager does. One of the things that frequently comes up on this show and kind of the first question I ask a lot of people is, what do you actually do? And when the mayor was on the show, she's been on a couple times, we joked, she said, oh, people don't know. They think I run the city, but you know, I we don't have a strong mayor system. And I joked, I said, oh yeah, no, Doug runs the city. And she kind of laughed, but I wonder if there's some truth to that maybe. Can you talk about what a strong city manager government system is and kind of what your role is as city manager? Sure. So starting with just labeling it, if you were to Google it, it would be a, a council manager form of government. And what that means, if you were putting it in terms of private industry, is that the council is effectively the, the board of directors, and I'm the chief executive of the organization. So the council sets the course with regard to policy. We'd like to accomplish this. We'd like it to happen roughly this way. And it's my job to take the resources that we have, a, a workforce of approaching 1,800, and effectuate that vision by resource deployment, by making certain that we prioritize the vision of the council over some other challenges, and that we respond to the changing needs of a dynamic community and a number of constituencies that exist therein. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me what I do, I explain it 
roughly as air traffic control because we have just a tremendous number of extremely talented and extremely capable folks who work here at the city of Reno. And my job mostly is to stay out of their way, make sure they're appropriately resourced and, and make sure that we're all pulling in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So I try to make sure that, you know, we don't have anybody crash into each other and we see, you know, out a little bit further than, than individual departments see on their own so that we can coordinate efforts and make the most of what we got. I get that. Kind of like the big picture of all of these different moving pieces. Mm -hmm. How did you come to be in this role? So I know you used to work in Sparks in a similar, I think you were assistant city manager in Sparks before you came over to Reno. Can you talk a little bit about that career process of, of kind of course. getting into city management? Yes. I mean, I don't think any little kid wakes up one day and says, you know what I want to do? <laughs> Be the city manager for a lot of reasons, starting with nobody really knows what the city manager does. Right. And also we don't get turnouts or awesome helmets or, or cars with lights on them. But, you know, so my career trajectory, I'm a lawyer by training. I spent a lot of time doing appeals and, and land development work and sort of for, for a number of reasons decided that rather than relocating to the, to the South where business would have been better for me. I could take that knowledge, particularly on the land development side, where you really do get sort of a front row seat to understanding how the municipality works, because you have to take that into consideration with respect to the entitlement process, with respect to making sure your projects get, get through and that they pencil and they work for the community. I was given an opportunity in Sparks to be an assistant city manager over there. When I was there, I actually focused a lot on the internal side of the house, so human resources, finance, IT. It was a great learning experience. This opportunity came available. And I thought to myself, well, why not? Mm -hmm. If not now, when? Yeah. What have the big differences been like from Sparks to Reno? Obviously, Reno is a bigger city. It's got different challenges. What was surprising to you coming to the, the bigger city? I think the dynamics of, of downtown have been eye-opening. It's certainly a, a unique challenge in the region with respect to, you know, not only the diversification of the economy downtown, but just the more urban environment than you see in Sparks, certainly than you see in the unincorporated county. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is the biggest little city and that's a, that's a unique space to be in. There are a number of parallels, a number of similarities that I think I can draw on my experience there and, and uh, my time before that when we get out into the periphery, when we're talking about Demondi Ranch or what have you, it's not all that dissimilar from the service demands and everything else that you'd see in like a Wingfield Springs. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of similarities, but I think the the dynamic nature of downtown has been, it's been a, it's been a fun challenge. Yeah, I bet. As you mentioned, kind of overview of how all of the different moving parts work. Is there kind of an element of looking forward at what the city should be or how the city's growing to like, do you see your role as mostly like driving the ship or steering the ship? And how do you kind of balance those two priorities? Going back to the way I described the role of the city council and the, and the role of, those, of the manager's office. I, I think that the city council drives the ship, right? They sort of set the course, they set the vision, they say, you know, in a year, in five years, in 10 years, in 50 years, we'd like Reno to look like this. Mm -hmm. And my job then is to say, all right, so these are the resources we have. This is the path that we can take. I recommend that we do this, that, or the other thing. But if you want to make real meaningful progress in these spaces, these are the levers we need to pull. And these are the hard decisions we need to make today to lay the foundation for what we could be in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it's tough, right? Because you won't know if you were successful in making the right decision until you get to that 20 year threshold, at which point 
you know, it'll be a different band of electeds. It'll be a different city manager. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the number of folks on the team who remain after, after 20 years, you never know. Right. And so we do our best to make sure that the rationale for the decision is appropriately detailed and, mm-hmm. and written down for posterity, I suppose, if no better reason. Yeah. But for me, city council drives the vision and I make the course corrections. I got that. How do you think that we've done as a city so far at these kind of like long-term plans about how we're going to change or grow as a city? So obviously we've had a couple pretty big shifts, especially after the recession. A lot of, you mentioned diversification of, you know, where we're making money and not just all from gaming and tourism. Do you think that we've done a good job of making those big changes? And, you know, you've been in this area for a long time. What's your experience been of the changes so far, like these big shifts we've seen in the last decade or two? I think we're doing a better job. You know, when you when you look at the redevelopment plans, when you look at the downtown action plan, you know, we just we have a series of plans. We have books and books of plans. They all say roughly the same thing, right? These are the assets. Here's how you'd leverage those assets to build a more dynamic space and a community that people are really proud to call home. And so we know what the recipe is. It's really just taking those action items forward and and moving on them. And I think we're doing better in that regard. I think that we went through probably a little longer than a decade where that wasn't so much an option for us. I mean, even if we had, even if we had the complement of elected officials who wanted to take action and who were excited to do those things like we do now, I just don't know that it was fiscally possible, Mm. right? With, with the way the organization had to rebuild after the downturn, you know, for example, we still haven't quite hit complete staffing over at RPD and their budget, of course, continues to grow. But the parks budget remains $8 million less than it was in 2015. Hmm. And so it's it's a challenge to balance the competing needs of the community. And it's tough, right? Because any parks director, if you, you know, there's, a, there's a conference going on in Dallas right now. Any parks director would tell you that they, they get frustrated because they lose to public safety. And I think that that's probably universally true in, in any community across the country. One of the ways that we've worked on that, and one of the, one of the best examples I think of, you know, the air traffic control concept we were talking about is, is sort of reimagining parks, not only as a recreation function, but also, you know, there's a component part of public safety in there in terms of early inter- intervention, making sure kids have something to do after school, mm. making sure that, you know, there are appropriate outlets for the youth in the community to go and be connected and have a good time and not be bored, as it were. Making sure that all those parts are interconnected and that all of our, all the people on our team understand the interconnected nature of the work that we do, mm-hmm. I think has made a significant amount of or has provided a significant amount of help in the, in that space. Yeah, you mentioned kids. I don't think of Reno or Nevada traditionally as a kid-friendly environment just because it has this background of casinos, but there are a lot of big cities where kids live closer to urban areas where that is a normal part of the life here. Is Reno getting better for kids? Do you see a future where downtown is a more kid-friendly place? I know there's movie nights happening at the locomotion plaza now so it seems like there's some efforts to introduce a little more family friendliness to reno either in reality or in how we're talking about it can you talk a little bit about who is reno for is this a family city do we still want to maintain a little bit of you know sin city vibe because that's part of our background kind of how do you see the different 
types of family and types of people fitting into you know the puzzle of the city i do think reno is for everyone and i'll take your your sort of inquiry in reverse order if it's okay i think one of the things that makes reno great is its natural sort of grittiness i think that's a that's a really attractive part of the community it it makes it unique isn't the right word but i think authentic Mm -hmm. interesting i think is probably a good way to describe it i think that's right but yeah i family friendliness is is one of the primary comments we get when we talk about what we want to see downtown and, and perhaps what downtown is lacking and the connectedness to the university and and sort of the neighborhoods that surround our downtown core I do think with some of the projects that are going on downtown right now, you're going to start seeing more people living downtown. And that will drive things like an urban daycare. That will drive things like more substantial food options downtown with respect to grocery stores or or other types of services in that nature. And that will, I think, just naturally change the vibe of, of downtown into a space that is more akin to an urban environment outside Nevada. So mm-hmm. less tied to gaming and, and things of that nature. But no, I don't think we need to get rid of gaming or or, or even necessarily downplay it. I think it's it's what makes Nevada unique and it's it's what makes Reno kind of cool. The mm-hmm. integration of, of that gaming functionality as opposed to sort of the island that you see down in Clark County. The integration of, of that use with just daily life is it's pretty cool. Yeah. You mentioned that the city council kind of steers the ship. They're the ones that are making decisions about kind of this vision for the future. One of the things that we often hear is about who's influencing who and and who is the city council listening to? Who is the city manager listening to? Obviously, you're taking a lot of direction from the council. But when you have decisions to make, where are you learning from? Like, who are you listening to? What are the things that influence the decisions that you make? It's, I'm sure it's not all just numbers on a page, right? You're making decisions. So how do you come to a lot of the decisions you make and who are the people that you're interacting with and, and listening to? So one of the things that makes Reno incredibly cool is the varied and diverse group of constituencies that we have in this community. And so we do our very best to make sure that we're making meaningful efforts into outreach, getting as many voices on an issue as we possibly can, at bottom, I take my direction from a majority of the city council, mm. right? And that sometimes is difficult in the sense that, you know, our city council doesn't always agree on things. And if you don't get to four, it's difficult to move that that body forward. And so, you know, starting there, right, four votes will, will chart a course for the organization, for the community. And then in terms of how to best effectuate that goal, We'll go out and we'll talk to the the people who are most affected and we'll do our best to make sure that, you know, like I say, if we if we pull a lever over here, we don't accidentally grind a gear over there. Right. I want to see some questions just about the, you know, kind of the ideas and concepts of Reno, kind of bigger picture of what is Reno? What do we want it to be? And I think there's a lot of potentially competing visions of Reno over the last decade or so, where are we a university town? Are we a mountain recreation outdoors town? Are we tourism and entertainment and gaming? Are we arts and culture and art towns, a big thing and focusing on the public art tech is, you know, frequently a conversation about Reno being more of a tech city. Where are we in this giant mess of identities do you think and how would you describe reno to people if someone says what's you know in a few sentences what is reno about you have all of these different visions what what is reno in that whole assortment 
it's it's really too bad that we are sitting in my office instead of in the conference room so that I could show you what has been written on the window of that conference room because I think that would give you some insight into how we think about it up here. But in terms of your question, what is Reno? All of the things that you described, I think, fit in that space. I don't think they're disharmonious. Is that a word? I think it should be. Unharmonious, disharmonious? Yeah, it is now. I think I think at once you can say, you know, this is this is an eclectic group of people who live in a relatively narrow valley and have unparalleled opportunities for outdoor recreation, a diversifying economy, and that sort of free spiritedness that makes Nevada great. It's a pretty awesome little melting pot of all of those things. And so it is what you make of it, right? I mean, I think opportunity abounds. Yeah. Let's talk about growth a little bit, because I kind of always come back to Reno's identity recently as a city that is growing. In all of these different ways, the common thread is that people are coming here, and it is turning into a bigger city than it was. We're having all of the challenges that come with a growing city, right? So we're one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S. What do you do as a city manager to make sure that you are accommodating that growth and making sure that there's not, you know, really negative impacts coming from it, because sometimes there are. So what the way we talk about it here is the city, like any business, is subject to the same pressures as a as a private side business, whether that's inflationary pressure, whether that's labor pressure, what have you. Our role as you talk about accommodating growth, right? We do want to make sure that we're growing in a responsible pattern. I think that the regional plan does a fabulous job of sort of laying out how the valley can grow as a, as a whole. We work really hard to understand department by department the overhead related to service delivery. The primary challenges that you see in that periphery where you see a lot of that growth is delivery of police and fire services, mm -hmm. extension of infrastructure, which usually but not always is borne by the developer. But of course, adding lane miles of roads that need to be maintained, there's an opportunity cost on the fuel tax side, which is, you know, despite the despite the rising cost of gasoline and, and diesel, a declining revenue stream. Mm. And so, you know, as as a dollar goes less and less far because of inflationary pressures, the opportunities to maintain our facilities and things like that become more and more challenging. And so it's it's a constant balancing act of, you know, where do we put this money to benefit the most number of people? And we, you know, we work hard to balance that through the equity lens too. In fact, we have, you know, a person sort of kitty corner here to, to my office whose entire role is to sit in on these conversations and make sure that we're delivering services equitably across the community. Mm -hmm. So it's a difficult, if not impossible task to get it right all the time, but we work really hard to make sure that the revenue that comes through the door is redeployed out into the community in a way that makes the most sense from a service delivery perspective, the most sense from an equity perspective, and the most sense in light of sort of the challenges that you've described, right? Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we don't only serve the newest parts of town and, and leave other parts of, of the city behind. I sort of describe it as the awkward teenage years, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think we've grown 
out and that will continue to some extent i mean that's a natural thing for all cities but we really do need to focus on on growing up in the urban core and making certain that we add density in places that are responsible and designed to handle that density and you know where we can contribute to the feel of the community rather than take away from it yeah that brings me to the next question i was going to ask is about density because one of my assumptions and correct me if i'm wrong is that as you're growing sometimes it's very beneficial to build in places that already have this type of infrastructure that you're talking about you don't need to build a road out to downtown because you already have roads in downtown you don't need to build a fire station because you already have fire stations those kind of things so can you talk about more about that densification because i'm you know, I grew up in Reno and then I lived in bigger cities that had more dense downtowns and the vibrancy, the opportunities that come from a more dense city, I'm really excited to see in Reno, but I know that there is still expansion and there's still what I would call sprawl happening in this area. So what are the differences from a city's perspective as far as the cost? Is densification cheaper? Is it easier? Is it harder? What are the the challenges or the opportunities that come from this near future, hopefully, densification in our core? I don't know that I would describe it as cheaper. It's certainly more efficient. Mm. As you described, right, we have fire stations, although we don't have the fire stations we would like downtown. A lot of those facilities are already in place. Facilities like that cost tens of millions of dollars. And so, you know, what we tried to do in the periphery is use the development process to have the folks who are creating those impacts pay for the base infrastructure that we need. Mm. That doesn't always translate in terms of timing. It doesn't always translate in terms of personnel to staff those facilities. And so that's a, a space where we can definitely get better as an organization. But to your question with respect to density in particular and growth on the periphery, growth on the periphery is almost always less efficient with respect to service delivery, sort of that infill development, almost always more efficient. The trade-off, of course, is if you're developing on the periphery, you're basically disturbing no one. And if you're developing in the downtown core, you're disturbing everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's it's really just a matter of making sure that, you know, our, our building inspectors and our code officials are on their game when we're doing stuff like that and communicating with the neighborhood and saying, hey, this is happening. It's not going to be forever and it's going to provide you know, this sort of opportunity and we're excited about it and we think you will be too. What other cities do you compare Reno to? I know that the mayor's on the, or she's the president of the Council of Mayors or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the United States Conference of Mayors. It's a big deal. She is. Yeah. She's, the, she's the president there and we can draw their expertise in, a, in an awful lot of spaces. It's nice to have that resource sort of just on, on speed dial, as it were. I bet. When we look at other communities, particularly in the redevelopment space that we've been sort of talking about without labeling. We look at Boise, we're looking at Oklahoma City, we're looking at Columbus, Ohio, which isn't a great analog necessarily in terms of size and number of people, but they've done a couple of things really, really well that I think translate pretty handily for us here in Reno. Where else? We've been looking at Calgary. We've been looking at, gosh, there's at least one more that the that the economic development people really like as a, as a model for things. but. But those are the big ones. What are the lessons that you're taking from those cities? Like, what are they doing right that you think can map onto Reno? It's interesting. 
I, I tell our group all the time, like good artists copy, great artists steal. Mm -hmm. All of those communities have approached redevelopment in roughly the same way with respect to the makeup of their boards and how they're making decisions and the tools that they're using. And we are just copying them. And we should see more about that here in the first quarter of the calendar year coming up. So the downtown entertainment district core ends up being a topic of conversation a lot whenever we're talking about crime. I think people think that downtown is more dangerous than other neighborhoods. When we talk about homelessness, that's often also part of the conversation around specifically that downtown core, Virginia Street Entertainment District. And I know that there's some small changes being made. There's more public art, there's murals, there's that kind of investment in the look and feel. There's the the clean and safe focus. I know the downtown arena partnership ambassadors, that's a big part of what they do is make sure that it has the, you know, the clean and safe is a priority for them. And they're doing, like I said, events, they're doing the movie nights and things. But that core seems to me to be the last piece in this set of neighborhoods that are getting better, right? Like, I think the university district has grown a lot. I live in the Riverside area, beautiful along the riverfront, really wonderful neighborhood. Midtown, of course, has really been, I think, the story of Reno for the last 10 or 15 years. And then there's downtown. So what's missing from this kind of downtown revitalization? I had Brian McArdle, who's the revitalization manager on the show. Is there things that we could be doing to expedite the improvement of downtown? Obviously, housing is going to be a big part of that. People need to live downtown. But what else can we do that can move things along? Or do we just need to kind of be patient, too? Because I understand it's very easy to be impatient and want things to get better right away. What can you say about downtown as kind of that last piece that seems to be lagging behind a bit? Well, we could start here, you know, Rebecca and, and Landon, who are sitting over here, I think can attest to, there's no one less patient than me. <laughs> and so downtown is safe. The, the unhoused population that you see downtown is not atypical. And in fact, I think we do a tremendous job as compared to so many other Western cities in connecting those folks with services and making sure that you know if there's something that they want or need, we're able to either provide it for them or get them connected with someone who, who can. But all of those services are in this downtown core, right? So it makes sense that you would see those folks here in downtown. You mentioned housing. I think that that's probably the big catalyst in terms of what's keeping downtown from really blossoming into what we hope it, it will be in the next five-ish years. Because, you know, thousands of people living downtown will, of course, drive a number of changes, whether that's in a retail space or a grocery store or an urban daycare, like we talked about. The, the vague term that we use in terms of what's missing is activation, mm -hmm. because it can't just all be special events, right? As fun as they are and as right. important as they are to the local economy, we just need more activation in a handful of spaces, right? So we need some retail opportunities to take root and work downtown. I think that the investments that the city council has made along the river path and revising how we go about moving people around along the river and how people enjoy the river will be a big deal. I think we're gonna have some opportunities here in the big parks and plazas that abut the river from, let's call it Booth Street to maybe here in, in City Plaza over the next couple few years with the work that's being done on the Arlington Bridges. Mm -hmm. You know, just giving people more reason to be downtown outside the context of a special event is, I think, going to be the key to 
having downtown become a, a place that that people think about a little differently how does the there's a i like tenant improvement funds that are for downtown businesses that I guess has some funds for exterior renovations and some funds for interior. Can you talk a little bit about the what that program is and the, and the purpose of it? Absolutely. People can apply online. The, the application's live right now using art money, a million dollars of art money. The city council set it aside for the tenant and facade improvement program. And so what that means is tenants and landlords can apply for up to $50,000 of facade improvements. So outside the windows, the awnings, the signs, paint, making sure the, the buildings are, are kept up on the, on the exterior and $50,000 of tenant improvements. So, you know, whether that's a grease trap, whether that's lighting, whether that's, you know, work on the inside of the building to make it more habitable for those retail installations, those restaurants, those things that we were talking about, giving people a reason to be downtown and experience downtown differently. We're trying to kickstart that. And certainly, you know, the, the proof will be in the pudding. We'll see, we'll see what comes out of that million dollars. But that's one of those tools that those cities that have had success in the redevelopment space have been using with quite a bit of success. And so it's our hope that having proved concept with this art money, it's something we can roll more permanently into the redevelopment plan. Right on. Is there anything that can be done about businesses that won't take advantage of that and won't do improvements and won't open their doors and plan to remain closed souvenir shops for the next decade until Reno gets worth selling? Well, I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's one of the more difficult dynamics is, is understanding that with the rise in property values if you own a building like that you're not necessarily incentivized to open it and run it because it just continues to rise in value and you can borrow against it it's a speculation it's a a whole it's a whole cycle but yeah i mean i think that there are some tools that that can be used there to encourage people to open their doors and and take a more participatory role in the future of downtown and our economic development folks, you mentioned Mr. McArdle earlier, they've been out sort of beating the bushes and talking to folks and saying, hey, what's it going to take for you to come to the table and, and participate in the trajectory of downtown a little mm-hmm. bit more? Got it. I have some questions about kind of more recent news. This isn't really a news show, but there's always stuff going on in the city and people are always talking about it. So I have a few questions about things that are happening recently. I know there was a huge announcement a couple weeks ago at the Grand Sierra Resort about building a new arena that the Wolfpack basketball is going to play at. It's a, apparently the biggest private investment in Reno's history, a billion dollars plus, and it's all private, which I think seeing the controversy over the A's stadium business down in Vegas and all of the pushback and all of the all of that controversy, nice to avoid that with private money development. Can you talk a little bit about that big project? Obviously, it's a huge deal for the area. What brought that about and kind of what are your thoughts on that big expansion? I think it's a it's a fabulous project. I mean, I'm excited to see it come to fruition just the same as as anyone who's affected by it. I think for me, the big takeaway is we are doing something right here at, at the city in terms of, you know, the foundation that's created from the business licensing side or the zoning side or what have you, the economic conditions of this community have improved in a way that causes people to say, I got a billion dollars. I'm putting it here. I think it's a, it's an incredible compliment to the work that the, that the folks who, you know, inhabit this building and, and some of our out parcels do every day to make sure that this is a, a community where people can say, yeah, I can come here. I can be successful. I can build a life here and, and be proud of it. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, it'll it'll change the the landscape over there on the on the eastern side of the city quite a bit, and that'll be nice to watch happen. But by and large, I I take it more as a sign that you know we're doing what we should do with respect to building that foundation from which people can jump and say, mm-hmm. man, you know, this is a this is a place worth investing in. This is a place worth building a business in. Yeah, one of the concerns about it is that it's off campus, and I know students want to go to basketball games. And I imagine that the city has some role to play in figuring out how to get people from one place to another, right? So is Gosh, that, I know it's an RTC I, thing, I or maybe, not. I have no idea, but I imagine that there's going to be some pressure on the city to make sure that if we're going to have a big off-campus arena, that the city is either working with RTC or with the university or yeah. whatever to make sure that we have the ability to move around the city in different ways. And that's another question I have coming up. But in general, how do you see the city kind of integrating with that project in terms of people's access to it? So I'll tell you, that was actually the first question I asked the folks from the GSR when they said, hey, we'd like to embark on this journey. How you can get the students from university? Mm -hmm. So I am assured that the athletic department and the university have an idea for shuttles to get the student body down to, to the new arena when it opens. With respect to your follow-up question that you didn't ask, but I'm going to answer anyway, (laughs) I think it's it's exciting, right? I mean, you allude to the city is concerned with all the many ways we get people around the city and the way people choose to move around, whether that's scooters, bikes, cars, walking, what have you. It's important not only to the success of that project, but the success of downtown, the success of the neighborhoods around our urban core and frankly just you know how we get people in from Damani Ranch to you know to enjoy a baseball game or to check out what we have to offer downtown or to enjoy the river with that project in particular I could see extending the river path all the way out there the improvements that we're doing all the way out there because you know the the path now goes right by the GSR and so Mm -hmm. making sure that there's a way for students to ride a scooter or people to you know park downtown and ride a bike or walk it's like a mile it's not that far Mm -hmm. but making sure that you know that path is something that people enjoy well enough to to choose that over i'm just going to drive and i'm going to park in the parking lot and then i'll drive home you know it's it's important for a number of reasons right there's a public health aspect to it just you know it's healthier to walk yeah to to drive in a car the reduction in emissions, all of that sort of stuff. But also people on foot, people on bikes, people on scooters, they're more likely on a trip like that to pop in and buy a cup of coffee or get an ice cream cone or say, man, that's a restaurant I'd like to check out sometime. And they'll make plans for the weekend just because they were on foot and they saw it rather than I got off the highway, I took in a basketball game and I went home. Right. So there's you know, second and third order effects of, of how people move around the, the community that we're trying to be mindful of when mm-hmm. we design out what, you know, not only the infrastructure improvements could look like, but what the, you know, what the master plan and the zoning code and the licensing codes all look like as they get revised to make sure that, like I say, that foundation is there for people to take advantage of and, and, and be successful in those pursuits. Yeah. GSR is still a hotel casino, and this is a big investment that is probably going to help their hotel and casino business. Mm -hmm. I know Jacobs Entertainment has their big neon line project. They're a hotel casino business trying to take a lot of business from the downtown core, I assume. The Row is our longtime hotel casino business in the downtown core. Do you see this project at GSR 
kind of stirring up some competition between these different elements of the business? Or is there going to be a likely response, you think, from the other casino operators to step up their game too? I know that downtown, there's a lot of criticism that there's not a lot of activation on the street. There's a lot of long blocks with no access, and it's just a kind of a dead zone in the middle of downtown. How do you see this project at GSR affecting the other casino hotel operators? And is there a likely you know effect in that entire industry here in town because there's so much investment over GSR? Well, I mean, I think as an American, I'm all for competition and in particular economic spaces. In this sense, I do think that there will be some response. The size of the arena that's proposed, the GSR doesn't have hotel rooms enough to house all of the people who would be there. So theoretically, if every single person in the arena needed a hotel room, that would bleed over into downtown, that would bleed over into into other spaces and I think would naturally cause a, a response. I think it's exciting too, in the sense that, you know, a, a modern arena, we should start to see those acts that might otherwise go to the lake, might otherwise mm. go to Sacramento, and that should also gin up a little bit more tourism and folks coming and experiencing our community. So, you know, I think it's a good thing on the whole. My expectation is that the downtown operators will see it in a similar fashion, despite mm. the fact that it's over at a competitor's site. Gotcha. That makes sense. You talked about making it easier to get around outside of a vehicle. I am a very strong advocate for all types of transit, except for cars. I, <laughs> I'm not real big on cars. I mean, I drive because we are a city that kind of requires it still, but I have lived in cities where you do not need to own a car. I recently got an e-bike and it's been nice to be able to get around town in a different way, mm -hmm. but there are some major gaps in our bike infrastructure. I have definitely thought, oh yeah, I can just go down here and then find myself on a you know 50 mile an hour road with cars right next to me. Speaking of, you know, family friendly stuff you're not going to send your kid out on their bike in a lot of areas in reno i think so there's a lot of attention lately on multimodal stuff we have the the bird scooters rolled out a couple of years ago we did all of the the study downtown where for a while the roads had you know different lanes and cones and all of that and i know that just very recently there's an actual plan that is starting to be rolled out can you just give a little overview of what is going to be happening what decisions have been made and what changes are being rolled out you're a day early, man. Am I too early? Well, this won't this won't be out till after it's announced. So you go wild. <laughs> well, so so what I got to tell you is I I don't know, right? We'll see what they do tomorrow. It's an exciting time in that micro and multimodal space. What we are trying to do is build a network of streets where you can ride a bike or walk or scoot or what have you and, and feel safe. I am glad actually that you mentioned that family friendly aspect of it because that's been one of the focuses for our our engineers and our team here is sort of melding that community feedback that we get with the engineering challenges with the needs of businesses and other stakeholders in the space to first attack the the spaces where we think we can make a lot of headway in that family friendly area where you'd say all right so i can bring the kids i can you know, go here, even if I'm a less avid or less experienced bike rider, because certainly, you know, we have folks who are very comfortable riding their bicycles wherever. And that's awesome. We also have to focus on creating yeah. greater ridership in spaces. And I think a lot of the way we're going to be able to do that, a lot of the feedback that we've heard is is in creating a sense of safety and a sense of comfort. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to focus on those areas and then we'll we'll be expanding. But yes, tomorrow we're going to talk about you know, sort of what that micromodal 
plan and the priorities for that plan ought to be. Mm -hmm. The city council is going to call some shots and then we'll work with RTC to make that a reality. Right on. Yeah. And no, I think that the, the perception of safety for people, especially riding bikes is super, super important. And I know that there are avid cyclists who are very comfortable in different kinds of bike lanes, maybe that are not protected, but I think a lot of people don't ride a bike even if there is a bike lane because it just doesn't feel safe enough. So things like protected bike lanes, I think are really important just so that people know that it is safe to bike on those things. Are there plans for more substantive things than just bike lanes? Are there going to be more protected bike lanes? I know on fifth street right now, the parking is separated from the sidewalk by the bike lane. So you have this little buffer between actual traffic. Can you speak a little bit about what type of safety features some of this might include? Sort of the world's our oyster in that space, but I think you're right with respect to, you said protected, and certainly that's a thing that we're after. I'm going to say separate because I don't know, you know, fifth, using fifth as an example, yes, the parking separates the drive lane from the bike lane, but we also have spaces where it's the plastic markers, right? And so depending on who you ask, is that a protected bike lane? Not really, mm. but is it a separated bike lane by something that's more visually acute than just a, a painted line? Yes. And so I think, you know, depending on your level of expertise, depending on your life experiences, you know, the level of comfort in a space like that could vary. But yes, certainly we're looking at ways to create more protected lanes, ways to create more opportunities for people to feel more comfortable. There are a number of tools there. And then, of course, just the realities of money and space and time. The staff recommendation tomorrow, I think, is something that's that we're pretty proud of mm -hmm. that takes sort of all the tools in the kit and says, all right, this is what we can do here and this is what we can roll out quickly and you know, this is this is the way we can do it. That said, on the go forward, one of the ways that we're finding success in grant writing and things of that nature is through the Complete Streets program. And of course, multimodal transportation is a big part of that. And so designing new streets, you'll start to see, I think, a more thoughtful approach to how people move around than mm. just cars on those new streets. And when, you know, things are torn up and, and rebuilt as opposed to sort of repurposed or rehabbed, you'll see a change, I think, in the way streets are designed so that multimodal experiences is more top of mind and, and less of a nice to have. It's more right. of a primary feature. Of the space. Yeah, like built into it rather than an afterthought, right? Right. What about... The University Street Cycle Track. So I had Kai Plask on from the Truckee Meadows Bike Alliance on like two years ago. And he talked about this plan for what was then called the Center Street Cycle Track. And I know it was one of the options that people could put public comment on. My understanding was like partway through the design phase, but it's something that the city says the city engineers don't think it's the best path. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because I know that there's recent news about it and it's a big topic of conversation. And I'm curious your understanding of what that project is or was, why it does or doesn't work. And can you kind of give your perspective on what that project is and what you think of it? Of course. So I, I, I would like to start here and say, you know, we got to 30% design on that project and the engineer said, hey, we have a number of safety challenges that are going to be difficult for us to overcome, you know, while maintaining parking and the business interests and things of that nature. And I think that that's a summary that's been out in the world. And of course, Mr. Plaskin's aware of it. The council's aware of it. There's you know, been plenty of, of talk about it. So when we spoke earlier about building a more holistic network of multimodal opportunities 
you know, in the urban core and then, and then stretching out into the, into the neighborhoods, the center street and, and university way space is one of those options. We as a staff think that there are better options to effectuate the goal that I was describing for you earlier of creating that comfort level for people who are less avid bicyclists. Mm. It doesn't mean that center street and university way is never going to happen. It means that as we prioritize the feedback we got from the community, what we think is feasible with the 20 ish million dollars that RTC has for this project, where we think we can make the most headway in terms of ginning up more and new ridership, we think there are better opportunities. Mm. And so it, does it fit in the, in the grand scheme of things? Yes, I think that it does, but it's also true that center and university are relatively straight, high speed thoroughfare through downtown that then get to the freeway and become sort of a gobbledygook of stuff. And so does that make it the best option for a single space for multimodal? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's not an option. It's just one that I think as we, you know, again, balance the needs of the competing constituencies in the community, we see an opportunity to do more good for more people in some other spaces not by saying no to the project, but by prioritizing other aspects of the project ahead of that one. Yeah, I get that. I think there also is a difference between, like I mentioned, experienced bike riders, bike commuters who are very comfortable on, you know, maybe a long, fast bike path and, you know, people who just want to cruise around on their bike downtown. And I understand there's probably a need to prioritize between those different types of bike riders. Is that part of the difference between those two plans is one is more slower through downtown and the other is more likely intended as a like a commuter track i think i, I mean how people choose to use it and experience it i suppose is, is going to be largely dependent on that individual but i think you summarized it really well in the sense that you know those lower speeds and and places where i think we can make people feel more comfortable on bikes and prove that concept out I think as a project and as a community, we're going to have more success mm -hmm. starting there than on, you know, sort of folks who commute on their bikes. And like you say, are, are extremely comfortable on them. Got it. Can you talk a little bit more about the cost? You said you got 20 million bucks and I know it's expensive to build everything as a normal citizen who doesn't work in, in government, everything seems wildly too expensive for me. Like a mile of road is however many millions of dollars. I'm, how is that even possible? So can you talk a little bit about the, the cost of some of these changes that you're doing? I know there's sometimes suggestions for cheaper alternatives, right? And rather than doing it the expensive way, are there faster and or cheaper ways to do things? Can you just explain from your perspective what the difference is between the the longer term, more expensive, more maybe like cohesive solutions versus the quick and dirty, get it done, improve the situation right now solutions? I can. So for context, right, we, we always talk over here that the dollar figures for some of these public works projects are, like you say, are, are tremendous, yeah. right? And they're, it's a lot of money for a household, but it's not a lot of money for you know, an operation of this scale. But for context, a square foot of pavement on a road is about $19, which makes a lane mile of road a little more than a million dollars to build. So if you have two lanes, it's two and mm -hmm. on and on, right? It's just, it's, it's breathtakingly expensive. And that's just to get it in, right? Not to maintain it and everything else. But the, the real question there the way I suss that out when we have conversations like that in this building is 
cost versus value, right? And so it might be cheaper or it might be more expensive, but what we're really looking for is value. And to me, expending this money, the value is going to be in growing that ridership, growing people who choose to use a method of transportation other than a car. And so our task here is to make a recommendation to the elected body where we say, look, to, to enhance that ridership, to make this a viable opportunity for our community, we think we should prioritize this way. You know, certainly we did the pilot project, right? And we rolled things out quickly. You know, some of it worked. Fifth Street worked really well. Mm -hmm. Virginia Street did not work really well. I think there are reasons why the way we did Virginia Street didn't work terribly well. You know, changing it to one way, things of that nature really made the project more difficult than it needed to be and introduced some variables that I think we weren't quite prepared for. But we learned a lot and were able to design a couple of alternatives that, that'll work pretty well. It really just comes down to if we just want a thing done, there are a lot of ways we can do that. But getting to done is sort of one component part of the, of the barter project, right? Being mm -hmm. done isn't necessarily the goal. The goal is making a viable option for people to move around the city in a way that effectuates economic opportunity along the path, in a way that contributes to public health, in a way that you know does all these things that go so much further than just, hey, we did a thing and now we're on to the next. And so being thoughtful about how that money goes out and being good stewards of taxpayer money, I think necessitates that, that we take that deeper look at it. Gotcha. I have a couple of questions about housing and homelessness, because that's also a very big topic of conversation in town. comes up very often on this show. The thing that I've been reading about lately is the Record Street Shelter. I know was closed, I think, at the beginning of the pandemic or when CARES Campus opened, the Record Street Shelter closed. And there's been calls for it to reopen, but I know that the building has some significant disrepair. It's not that old of a building. And I know there's just been some reporting about what's happening with the Record Street Shelter, why isn't it usable? Could it be usable? Can you talk about the the kind of history of the Record Street Shelter and what you are doing with it now or hope to do with it? Because it's a pretty big city asset. And it seems that with our, you know, homeless population, is CARES enough? I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about the Record Street Shelter and kind of your uh, understanding of it? I can. I don't know that my history is any better than anyone else's on how we got to this point what i can tell you is the the provision of health services and human services is a county function and i am extremely grateful to county administration and the and the complement of elected officials at the county in recent years for taking that incredibly seriously and and really revamping the way our community receives those services. They've they've just taken on an incredible leadership role in that space, and and that's opened a, a whole host of opportunities for us. But that wasn't always the case, and so, you know, however many decades ago the 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 Record Street Shelter gets built, but it gets built, and services are provided in there by the City of Reno through VOA Volunteers of America as a as a contractor in that space, but without any sort of revenue stream that was designed to support the provision of those services, right? So where the county gets money through the property tax system and the C tax system and HUD to provide those services, and the, I guess the, the government services tax as well, City of Reno didn't. It was really sort of a, an ad hoc response to 
a growing concern about the unhoused in, in our community and, and nobody was providing that service. And so my understanding is at the time, Mayor Cashel said, well, shoot, if they're not gonna do it, we're gonna do it because it has to happen. And so it did. But because it was cobbled together without any sort of meaningful revenue stream behind it or a revenue stream that was designed to support those large expensive services, it was always sort of a, a fight to make sure that funding was there, to make sure that it was cobbled together in a way that we could survive another year doing it. And the result of that is a building that just wasn't really maintained well enough to support continued service or, or use at the moment. And so, you know, with respect to could it be reopened, the county has indicated that they do not wish to have the building. They do not wish to use the building as a shelter. You know, they're in charge of the space and they mm -hmm. believe that you know, the CARES campus with the wraparound services that they're presently building out there is sufficient for the community. Is the building repairable? I mean, given time and money, anything's possible in the, in the space. I don't know that we necessarily have plans beyond this is a building that's been red tagged because it's not safe for human habitation. And because it is a city building, we're going to have to make some decisions about, does that mean we take from the existing CIP and prioritize repairing that building over other needs in the, in the organization, or the community, or do we make some other decision with respect to what to do on that site? I couldn't tell you what, what we're going to do yet. Right now, what we're doing is working up, you know, sort of, this is the condition. This is our best estimate at what it would cost to repair. This is what the value of the site is. Here's the menu of options. Tell us which direction you'd like us to go and we'll we'll do our best to effectuate that vision. But mm -hmm. certainly before the end of the year, I would think that the city council will be opining on what to do with that space. Got it. What else? What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about what's going on in Reno, the work you're doing, big priorities? What didn't we cover? Well, we covered a lot of ground. I mean, we think we're going to need to go. We're going to need to do this again. Yeah. So I tell sort of everyone. I mean, I do it every week. So oh, perfect. <laughs> we'll just let's just have this be a standing thing. We'll talk about sewer sometime. The, you know, I think we alluded to it before. We've talked. We've sort of woven it in through various parts of the of the conversation. But I think you know, a lot of times we don't think of the government as as a business because. Well, because it's sort of icky to think of it that way, but it is right. It's a service industry and, you know, we're not manufacturing widgets, but what we're trying to do is, is create an experience where people can look at this and say either I'm extremely proud to call Reno home because of all the things they're having in the community. I visited Reno and it was great. Here's, you know, here's why I thought so. But none of that's possible without, you know, the almost 1800 people who show up and work here every day. And whether that's, you know, the part-time lifeguard who hangs out at the pools in the summertime and makes sure everybody has a safe experience recreating or our firefighters who, you know, are 48 on 96 off and, and keeping everyone safe or our cops who are out on the street just grinding away, making sure that, that this is a, a community that's safe for everyone to enjoy. There are so many folks who make this go that don't typically get recognized that you would never know about if if they weren't out on the street you know we got people in this building checking plans making sure buildings are safe it just it takes a lot to make it go and the work that these people do is incredibly valuable and they never get enough thanks and so 
you've put a microphone in front of my face and you've asked me if I wanted to say anything and I do. I just they they do such an incredible job and if you know however many of them listen to them I very much appreciate the work they do every day. Excellent. A question I used to ask and I kind of got out of the habit was who else should I talk to? I've done the show for a couple of years. I've had a lot of really great guests on, but there's so many people in Reno to talk to. There's so much going on. I know you're not familiar with my entire guest list, but you know, for me to share more about what's happening in Reno and what's important, what kind of topics or people do you think I should focus on? I got a new season coming up next uh, couple months. So what do you think? I think, so you talked to the police chief, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think, I think we should try to get you introduced to the folks who are doing the Harris project. I think you ought to talk to them. I think you ought to go down and talk to Perry DiLoretto about what he's doing in Damani Ranch. If you haven't talked to Jeff Jacobs, I think you should talk to him. He's, he's got an open invite. He's welcome to come on the show anytime oh, he wants to. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let me see if we can help prod that along. You talked to the president of the university? Yeah, that was a great conversation because I think that I'm very interested in how UNR integrates with downtown. I lived in mm-hmm. Portland for a number of years and okay. you know, Portland State is mm-hmm. in downtown Portland. Right. So it's got all of these amenities of a downtown city right there and it's a really cool experience for the students i think that students want to live in cities they don't Mm -hmm. want to live in you know i went to unlv which is not as far as i can tell any kind of campus environment that's connected to a downtown in a way that means anything and i see reno potentially having that so it was great to talk to president sandoval about that vision because i think he has the same kind of idea okay have you talked to the new executive director at goed i'm not sorry not goed edon no, I have not yet, but that is on my on my potential list. I haven't talked to anyone from Edon. I know Brian McArdle used to be at right. Edon, but I know Edon has a huge impact. For folks who aren't familiar with Edon, can you just explain kind of what Edon is and the impact that they've had? Sure. It's an acronym, right? So Economic Development Authority of Western Nevada, and their entire mission, at least on the little blurb, is to sort of grow the economic climate in Western Nevada, whether that's through attracting new businesses bringing jobs to the region, advocating for businesses with respect to the regulatory framework that's in place to make sure that there's, you know, a a fair and and modern minded business climate here in in Western Nevada. I actually think that the the new executive director out there is going to be a particularly interesting interview if you can get him on the calendar, because he was an assistant city manager in Virginia Beach. And so he really understands the interplay between new businesses coming in and the strains on infrastructure and the impacts on the on the community so he he's a he's an interesting discussion for sure who else should you talk to that's a pretty good list you talked to ben at rise i did yeah actually yeah i talked to Ben. he was one of the first guests on the show he was the third episode and we talked all about the history of rise and i actually have another episode this season nice so yeah i've had tried to have episodes regularly around housing and homelessness. So I had Grant Denton on, I had Ben on, and I'm hoping to continue that as a ongoing part of this show is talking to people who are actively working in that space around housing and homelessness services, because it's such an important part. So yeah, Ben was fantastic and and looking forward to having him again on the show in the future, I hope. My only other suggestion I think would be maybe you get the conglomerate of fire chiefs and JW together and you talk about dispatch, right? So the changes in dispatch that are coming in the new CAD and how that will improve service delivery around the region wow. could be could be interesting. I know nothing about that, so those are my favorite episodes. Me when I That's get to learn I a lot. <laughs> Perfect. Well, 
Doug, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to talk to you. Like I said, I will never run out of people to talk to in Reno. There's so much going on here. And it's great to talk to someone from the city. I've talked to a lot of folks on city council, but it's nice to talk to someone from kind of like a different department of what city council does and get some of your thoughts about how things are going in Reno because, you know, you have a lot of impact on it. So I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to my guest, city manager, Doug Thornley. Great to be able to sit down and learn a little bit about how the city operates and talk about some of the current issues here in the area. If you enjoyed this episode or any other, please do me a favor, help spread the word. Word of mouth is everything for a project like this. I say this all the time, and I really mean it. Word of mouth is the only way that people find this show. I, as I said, don't have money to spend on advertising. I don't have sponsors that are bringing a lot of income that I can turn around to actively financially promote the show. So your word of mouth has a huge amount of value. If you can tell people about this show, let them know it exists, send them a link, share posts on social media, all of that really is essential for this show, reaching the people who probably want to hear it. There's tons of podcast listeners in Reno who don't even know this thing exists. So help them find it. Really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.